Good afternoon and welcome to the 29th episode of Genomics Kapshap. Genomics Kapshap is an initiative by Mapma Genome to sort of bring in the community of experts, uh, you know, both in and around the medical, the genomics and, and others to sort of help simplify concepts of uh, genomics. And we are delighted that uh, today we have a very, uh, very distinguished um, personality in the field of pediatrics, uh, Dr. Pritesh Nagar. Welcome to the welcome to the show. Um, uh, he's the uh, head of the Department of Pediatrics at Care Hospital in in Hyderabad, and he has many many long lists of accomplishments. So welcome to welcome to the show. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Thank you, and and I'm not going to go into too much of the details. We'll be going through your little bit of your or life's uh, you know ba your background and and where you started from. Uh, so I think people would like to hear it from you not, rather than from me. Um, so if we if we can get uh, started, I think it'll be nice to know you know uh, what prompted you to become uh, a doctor in the first place. Was it you know lots of family members that were doctors or you are one of the only in your family or the first. I, I don't know anything about, you know, what your background is and what made you become a doctor. Uh, so actually I am the uh, only medical fraternity in my entire family. In fact, I would say the extended family and probably all my relatives in Hyderabad. So most of us, we are Gujaratis. So most of Gujaratis are basically from the business background. So education somehow takes a backseat in a lot of us. So uh, when I was a kid, actually, I did have a chronic liver problem. And I was on treatment and medications for almost about 8 to 10 years. So, you know, during that time, somehow that, you know, frequent visits to a pediatric clinic and doctor and something that, you know, that triggered and kind of imbibed in me that, you know, probably I would like to do something like this and I would probably become a doctor. It was more about, you know, uh, at that point, of course, we don't really, as a kid, we don't really know much about how the profession is going to be or what kind of uh, social or economic uh, benefits is going to be. It was more just about the aura of being a doctor, which caught on. And I was like, okay, if I have to do something right from childhood, I was like, okay, I will probably become a doctor. So that's how it caught on. And probably I never wavered from that. I was very keen right in my school days. Probably I can remember as early as six, seven, I was very keen that I'm going to go into the medical field. So that's how it kind of started off. Wow, that's that's very impressive because I think I had once done a survey of a lot of people, including myself, and what we wanted to be when we were young and, and what did we end up becoming. And I think that the answers were quite, you know, very different. So it's... It's great to see that you know something you you thought about and and actually ended up that's what you're doing even today. So, so I think you know I must congratulate you. not many people know <laughs> what you. where where they uh, you know what they want to do when they are that young. Um, so uh, you know you you obviously have uh, after that you you know you decided to be a pediatrician because you said that was what you started off with being a pediatrician. But did you, uh, then you went out to get a lot more education. Was that mostly in in India, abroad or, and I know you've also been training a lot of people as well. I think there have been a long list of uh, people that you trained. So is that something that you are excited about in terms of, uh, you know, imparting that education to others as well? Yeah. 
So uh, honestly, actually, I never dreamt of or never had the thought of becoming a pediatrician. Actually, in fact, during my uh, MBBS days, I always wanted to become wanted to become an ophthalmologist mm. because that's what fascinated me. Uh, but then uh, during my uh, internship, the one year training that we have after MBBS, uh, that one month of posting in pediatric somehow you know changed my mindset and I got fascinated by this branch. And then that's how I was like, you know, if I'm going to do anything, it's kind of going to be pediatrics or nothing else. So in fact, I still remember that when I had gone for my postgraduate counseling and uh, my rank was ninth, All India in Manipal, and the seats were very limited. So even at ninth rank, I was not very sure whether I would get pediatrics or not. And I still remember calling up my father. We didn't have a mobile phone those days. So I called him up from a PC and I said, this is the status of pediatric seats. And I would get everything else, but if I'm not getting pediatrics, I'm just dropping and coming back home. I'll write again. But probably, fortunately, I got it, and that's how the journey started. And yes, uh, teaching somehow has been my passion from the very beginning. Uh, in my days in Manipal, we used to teach undergraduate students, and then slowly, probably, I even ended up teaching postgraduate students in my a small stint of work there. And then subsequently, when I landed in Hyderabad, I realized that. Uh, quality teaching is something that is not available so easily mm-hmm. and then you know getting yourself updated constantly getting yourself uh, you know imbibed with new knowledge constantly is not something that very easily is available to everybody so then i realized that i have a real a passion for reading and kind of you know going through everything new that comes up in the field of what i do so that somehow percolated into the habits of training and teaching and you know there's another thing that if you read something you retain a small percentage of it but then when you try to teach and when you try to talk to other people you retain a lot more about it so indirectly it does benefit me also i also end up learning a lot in that so that's how it is and and um, so when you are you know when you are a pediatrician i think a lot of parents must be bothering you a lot <laughs> yeah i think so <laughs> uh it's also you know it's also you are the you know many times when people just have babies i think they really don't know what to do and so for every little yeah. thing i'm sure that you get a lot of uh, people who come to you for uh, both on the phone i'm sure and and also i think in the hospital so you know how does uh, you know in terms of that uh, is it that you remember your first 10 years you mentioned that you were going to a doctor on a regular basis uh you know how is it that you you look at patients is that something that is um, you know what percentage of patients i think are uh, just overly um, you know they reach out to you when they don't need to come out but uh, you know what percentage are actually severely ill i'm sure there are there is some sort of a a percentage of people who are uh, the hypochondriacs and people who are worried about their children yeah. so uh see in my uh, pra- uh, practice so what i have done is over a period of time compared to let's say i would say it's probably my 18 years now of uh, doing my pediatric practice so the first decade versus now that is in the last 5 7 years uh, i have kind of you know learned to let go and at times probably even say no in the earlier days it was like you know every single call i used to attend and i was like okay 10 o'clock 11 o'clock in the night you have an emergency come down to the hospital i am right next door i'll come and see you and that kind of thing but but then it realized over a period of time it takes a toll on your health 
you end up spending a lot of sleepless nights unhappy family and so in the end i decided to let go so and most of my regular patients are tuned to things at least those who have been coming to me for last so many years now know very well when they need to worry what is panic and when routine problems which do trouble the kids but then having interacted with me so many times or even the newer parents who come i keep telling them so then they know what is exactly the situation where they would need to panic and what is the situation where it's kind of a routine problem they could always wait for the next day and come over mm-hmm. but yes having said all that uh taking care of kids is not a very easy job and to be honest uh, on a lighter side i would say that we are something like glorified veterinary doctors because you know smaller kids probably which form the majority of our population of patients who come to us once they get older they don't fall sick Mm-hmm. so the younger kids who come they can't express themselves they can't really tell what's happening to them so it's all about visual cues seeing them trying to understand them and then trying to come out with a diagnosis so in that situation we do rely a lot on parents mm-hmm. and because parents are also in their phase of early parenthood you see a teenager or an older child's mom or dad versus the mom or dad of a newly born or a baby who is 1 2 year old they would always be more apprehensive and more worried and more panicked even one sneeze or one cold they would start getting panicked and rush and the same thing it's a teenager who coughs for four five days they would say ha chalta hai ye to abhi ho raha hai kuch problem nahi kind of so that's there but i think the basic crux of all this is the more you educate and empower your parents mm-hmm. things become really easy that's what i've realized over a period of time So actually, my emergency phone calls and all that have actually dropped over a period of years. There were a lot more when I was less busy. They are a lot lesser now when I'm more busy. That's that's great. You've been able to streamline that, and and I I like that point where you say that you know lot younger children are basically unable to express their uh, feelings, and but you are also I think in some ways become part parent when you are you know. when you when you look at the children as well right because you are you have to look at those cues and and be able to to answer and figure out what is going on but if you just look at the overall situation in in uh, in india do you think there are currently do we have like challenges in pediatric and neonatal care because clearly we are going through a lot of changes in this whole field as well right i mean people uh, initially didn't have as many tools but today some people have the tools others don't have the tools um you know whether it is in terms of screening newborns or or otherwise so what are your thoughts around that so the challenges are there and probably you know we as a nation till you know this is my thought that till we are able to develop a very robust public healthcare system mm-hmm. something like what the uk has or probably australia has or maybe even new zealand i believe so Canada. till then the challenges are always going to be there because the majority of healthcare whether it's pediatric or any other thing in india is driven by the private market so what happens or what my observation is cost and quality these two somehow don't go hand in hand and that's where the biggest challenge comes mm-hmm. and hota kya hai in case of children it always is the general assumption of public ki it's a small baby so it's a small baby why the cost is so much in fact it's reverse it's a small baby that's why the cost jumps up 
you have to the equipment or for that matter the skills required or for that matter anything that you do is a lot more expensive when you treat a small baby you know that's a simple analogy i can give to this is you now let's say you buy a laptop it might cost let's say a, a basic laptop might cost 40 50000 or something a lakh but you buy a pc which is a bigger unit you get it for a much cheaper price so you know it's the same thing applies there it's not a very good analogy but it's something that can be understood so the cost is one thing which always becomes a very big burden in case of pediatric population that's one big challenge i see and so far honestly i am not able to see any kind of easy outcome or easy solution to this though nowadays we do have a lot of crowdfunding and all those things but till insurance is something which universally everybody adapts that's a big big challenge the second thing is sitting in a city working in a corporate hospital it's very easy for me to say that okay we can do everything whatever you want you can get your child kind of a thing but the same thing for a pediatrician practicing in let's say a smaller city or a town or a village is very very difficult because they wouldn't have that many facilities or that many you know infrastructure to you know take care of all the basic needs so the basic grassroots level pediatrics mm. or for that matter again this applies to other field also is something that needs to really become a lot more robust and strengthened and that probably requires you know so many things it requires education it requires training it requires empowering them it requires the right kind of guidance and tools so those are all uh, challenges and troubles that we keep seeing but yes compared to what was let's say a decade or two decades ago and compared to now what is there we are probably doing as much as probably the west is doing we are and probably yes we are doing for a far more lesser cost than what it would be in the west but then all those people who always say this that the cost is so less in india even in the let's say biggest corporate places the cost is so less in india compared to the west what we need to understand is the per capita income of india Mm-hmm. so when you look at that versus the cost the bridges the gap is really really huge so that's something that needs to be closed in but then again here i would say that probably 2% of patients of the entire population of sick patients who may come to you would actually require that kind of high end care that means the 98% of patients can be sorted out by even a basic amount of decent pediatric care so i just would love to see the development of some kind of cost effective but quality pediatric care that's something i would look at as my dream i i think that's amazing right when you think about it that you know you need high quality care in only 2% of the patient i, I mean very expensive or high quality or whatever you may call it and maybe if there is a way to sort of do that and i think now we have started to see for instance a lot of uh, um, you know tools that are you know people are doing where they are looking at even uh, mris and other things you know from a distance and things like that uh, or even operating them uh, so i think maybe they will get to that stage where we will be able to provide this to every every hospital hopefully um but do you think for instance like i think i don't know exactly how many babies are born per year but i i remember it used to be around 20 uh, 26 to 30 million is what i'm assuming somewhere in that in that range right 
Uh, and I know that uh, the number of people who went through, not, the number of babies that used to go through a screening, like a newborn screen or something, was was less than 2%, right? Uh, so is that something that has uh, that is improving currently in the country? And and two is, has that even made a difference? I think that is also a thing that when you're doing a basic newborn screen like the UK does, um, will that have a big effect in terms of when you're looking at like 98%, you know, can we screen out these, uh, at least look at the babies that are need attention upfront rather than, you know, either uh, delay that um, diagnosis or, or otherwise, do you think that role of newborn screening has, uh, you know, it has some role to play if you're able to figure out how do we filter this out over the next few years? Yes. So I, I, I am a very staunch uh, believer of uh, newborn screening. And uh, to just put it to facts, uh, my, my son is 14 years old. And 14 years back, when this was still a very nascent thing, I did a newborn screening for my son. So I am a very strong believer of that because uh, there are so many disorders, the metabolic disorders for which the newborn screening does a uh, kind of uh, detect, which could be picked up. And quite a few percentage of them are amenable to some sort of early intervention. Mm -hmm. So we are basically looking at some sort of preventive therapy or some sort of early salvage therapy before the problem becomes uh, to such an extent that then you can't do anything and the child loses his childhood or probably even because that's the biggest problem when we are dealing with children. The same thing compared to adult, let's say someone is dealing with a 30, 40 year old, the life ahead is another 20 or 30 or 40 years. But then when you treat, look at a newborn, you're looking at the next 70 years. So that's why these things become important. Now, has it changed? Yes, but I am not very good with math. So I really don't know the India figures. But I would say my own personal experience compared to before and now. So some things are slowly getting accepted. For example, at my center now in care, we have 100% screening for hypothyroidism. Mm -hmm. Probably in my previous hospital, I would say just about five years ago, it was hardly about, I would say 50-60%. So now I am able to screen 100% of babies born at my place for hypothyroidism, which is at least a start. And I would say most, at least 70 to 80% of babies who come to us here do undergo the hearing screening. So it's another bonus point. Uh, moving to the extended newborn screening. Now, again, the problem there that comes in is the pricing. The cost is something that becomes a hindrance for a majority of population. Those who are in the affordable category, those who are you know in the elite category, they would always do it and there are parents who are accepting it and doing it also. But then the majority or the bulk of population doesn't fall into that category. So they that group of parents are someone who don't readily accept it for the reasons of cost. So that's something that sometimes becomes a hindrance, but still the acceptance is definitely going up. But what I would give a message is if not anything, at least hypothyroidism and hearing two things that probably is not costly is something that should be universally implemented and i'm seeing a lot of hospitals are also doing it even smaller centers have started doing it and it's really really useful uh, hearing is something which i realized how important it is though i was a believer of it but i realized the real importance when i came to care so we have a cochlear transplant team here 
and i keep seeing on an average three or four babies who come to me pre cochlear transplant checkup and vaccination and everything and they are all congenital deafness children like five year old child seven year old child who is not able to hear and because they is not able to hear he is not able to speak now had this child undergone a newborn hearing screening he would have undergone therapy earlier not that it would have changed the course of the disease but instead of waiting till 7 years he would have got a hearing aid at an early age by now he would be speaking and communicating so it's very sad to see those parents and kids struggling so you know that is how you would look at the newborn screening preventing problems the same thing applies to hypothyroidism i i i still remember the parents still me i know the name of the child also but i don't want to just put out on a forum like this but you know this child came to me at 3 months of age with all full blown symptoms of hypothyroidism and unfortunately nobody had really looked into it or picked up the baby never underwent newborn screening 3 mm-hmm. months of age we picked up a hypothyroidism of course the treatment was done all that but then the 3 month is lost and when it comes to problems like this time is brain so the 3 months of lost time of brain development is never going to come back even in the next 30 years of life this could have been prevented so we probably i would say in last one year we have picked up about two or three hypothyroidisms congenital so yes you must have screened hundreds but we have picked up two or three but that means those two or three are now saved from a lifelong damage that's the whole idea yeah and i think you know those are some very fantastic examples because i think for many people they don't realize that it's not about the you know one if if we can implement it for everyone i think that's the the best but even otherwise i think the cost that the parents and the family and everybody else bears later can be much more harder right like you mentioned about the child mm-hmm. who couldn't speak i think you know most people don't understand why they you know why they are why they are behind in their studies or or otherwise and i think if you don't screen you don't find it and and therefore are unable yeah. to them in some ways just to just to add to this you know hearing is something which still though many are accepting i'm still finding a bit challenge at times because a lot of parents you know who have come little late one two months they are like nahi when we speak or when we make noise the child is able to want to respond is it that is not what it means and don't go by that you know that that's something that probably our mindset needs to change and we all need to push probably if i remember right i am not very sure at this point but i remember reading it once upon a time there was some recommendation even from the government about probably trying to push for a universal hearing screening so that's something that has probably has to you know get implemented across probably even smaller centers and everywhere so i don't know if you've heard about the nidan kendras that started uh mm-hmm. that the government has started so these are okay. basically done uh, i mean they're not that i mean they're they're still about i would say about 30 i don't some the, the decent number uh it's supposed to, it is there in every state and the idea was that you know when you look at things like thalassemia and many of these other genetic conditions that the government would actually screen these uh, these you know babies for free uh in in these nidan kendras right so the idea was to get to a universal screening con, you know stage where you are talking about whether it is hearing hypothyroidism but also things like you know you're looking at you know phenylketonuria or g6pd or thalassemia and others and i think if you can uh, if there are you know if you can implement something across um across the country i think 
maybe we'll see uh, many more children that can be saved um, yes. uh, and uh, not have to go through the trauma of of uh, of the disease, especially if it can be prevented. I, I believe, I think Goa has that uh, policy of universal screening. That's something which is commendable. And I think many, many other states are also looking at doing something. But yeah. uh, the, the one yeah. I was talking about was more from the Department of Biotechnology. They, they wanted to okay. create that awareness and, and build, uh, you know, understanding of, of these kind of genetic uh, problems. Exactly. Um, okay. uh, so the other thing that, um, that I, I have uh, seen often, and, and I know that, you know, some of my own team members have brought about to me, is that when they are... You know, for children, I think we have started to see, a, you know, either report a lot of lot more of sepsis cases uh, and others. Do you think that is actually rising, or it is just that we are hearing more about it? Because that can be they can be two separate things in terms of uh, what is yeah. going on. So, uh, again, I'm not very sure of what the data says currently from India, probably across the world. But uh, what I have seen in my experiences is probably one. There are two aspects to this. One is we probably are picking up more cases because probably more of them are aware of requirement of healthcare services and they are landing up at hospitals. So there would be a certain population in this who would have otherwise probably not landed up at hospital, especially those from the poor socioeconomic strata or the you know, you know, rural areas who are now coming to healthcare who probably would have... I remember seeing a lot of kids in my very old days would be brought dead kind of a thing. So you know, that population is decreasing. So probably there are a group of patients who are contributing to that. The second thing is, this is probably one of my favorite topics of discussion. And that is one is the indiscriminate use of antibiotics. That's something which probably leads to a lot of these kind of uh, problems because then the bugs become resistant. Mm -hmm. And then eventually even the normal flora, see we have to understand that our body is not living in isolation. So, in fact, our human body across your nose, your throat, your skin, everywhere, there are microbes, there are bacteria. They are staying harmoniously with your body. They're not doing any harm to your body. But then when you disturb that standardized or that kind of you know harmony between the organism and this one, these can then invade your body. And one of the contributing factor is actually the indiscriminate use of antibiotics for simple, simple things, which then... You know, I, rem I always tell parents and I always remember the story, if we all recall, that uh, the boy who shouted wolf, wolf every time. And when the real wolf came, nobody came to help. because So it's like you give antibiotics, antibiotics and antibiotics every time for every small thing. And then you have a real genuine problem. The bugs are resistant. It doesn't work. And those kids land up with real bad problems. So the contributory factors are multifactorial. Mm -hmm. It could be that more people are reaching the healthcare. There's more, more availability of and use of things which should not be. Probably we as the medical fraternity should change the way we practice. Uh, that I feel will bring down the number of cases and probably yes, uh, get them better care. So, so I think you, you touched upon something that's right now very much current in my, my brain because we are currently developing a a microbiome test, right? And I've done mine three times over the last few months. Uh, and, and it's fascinating because uh, one thing that my parents didn't let us do was to use antibiotics in the beginning, right? So if you, 
you know, we were never given much of antibiotics. Uh, at least I don't remember any actually till I grew up. And, uh, and maybe I don't remember in certain cases, but we were, that was not the standard of care, at least not in, in where I was. But uh, that's not true in uh, the case of, you know, my husband's family actually full of doctors. I think they got more antibiotics than I ever did. But one of the things we were looking at was to see the, what is going on with our microbiome, right? So when you mentioned the, the bacteria and, the, and all of the other fungi and other uh, organisms that live in our body, it was fascinating for me because I did it three, four times. I did it once post Diwali, then I did once around November, then I did once in January, right? And uh, November, no, December, and then once in January, and I'll probably do one again. Uh, so I wanted to see the effect of food um, the effect of travel, uh, stress, and and also I think uh, antibiotics because I did take some antibiotics around, um, you know, when I was in in Doha. So it was fascinating. Was writing down all of the things that I'm eating, and seeing and seeing if it has having a change, and it does have. It, you know, it it is making actually it wipes out certain types of bacteria. You can see some other yeah. uh, develop and so on. So I think. You know, while we can, you know, this is a science that is, um, you know, not yet fully out there for everybody, but it is something that I think that hopefully people will start to see what is actually happening and not just say that, uh, yeah, doctors told me not to take it, but I'm still take it because it makes me feel good now, you know, immediately it makes my child feel good today, right? Uh, and they want to stop all of their problems like right now. I think people have to start seeing what happens, consequence of that to the rest of your health and, and uh, what, what you're doing to spoil the, uh, you know, spoil your own microbiome in, in that sense. Uh, but hopefully I'll write a little bit about this uh, so that people can get a sense of, you know, my own experiences with understanding of, of my little organisms Absolutely. in my gut and, and, and other places. So. <laughs> Uh, so you, you know, just to add to this because you brought up brought the entire topic of microbiome uh, if you really look at it uh, babies who have been breastfed versus babies who are kind of on formula feeding or top feeding and all that the entire gut microbiome is different mm -hmm. and the gut microbiome of babies who are on exclusive mother feeding is so much different that it keeps them healthy for a longer time it prevents so much not only immediate infancy period but also later on in life in fact there have been well, anecdotal literature about relationship to obesity future cardiac problems future dyslipidemia and so many things so so much of things are going on inside that microbiome that uh, we still really haven't found the tip of the iceberg i think i agree with you i think there are uh, many you know studies that are there and i think now with the microbiome studies i think it will be obvious to parents uh, and it will make your you know case that that pediatricians have been making for a long time um, but i think it will make it a lot more stronger now with more scientific evidence in in terms of what is happening with the microbiome so uh, you know you're currently i think one more thing i want to to go upon is um, you know you're the head of pediatrics and i'm sure you have a whole team and one of the big challenges of having like a, a large a team of doctors is you know is there you know does it you know and, every, and and especially in the field of medicine right people go to a specific doctor they'll say you know i want to go to dr nagar or i want to go to you know someone else so how 
is there a way to bring a more standardized process? For instance, if you want to bring something, you know, one is, of course, you know, you can standardize testing processes, but how do you standardize other things? Like, are there ways of bringing in, you know, especially since you are um, an educator also, uh, is quality something that can be taught? Is, uh, you know, is is there SOPs that can be taught? And, and uh, does, does that mean that people will still come to the doctor that they trust or and can trust we created it's a very long difficult question but uh would yeah, you get your thoughts on it so uh there are, there are multiple facets to this question so the first facet is about a particular doctor and this one so you know it's it's a bit difficult to get that working out in india is what i have found because once a patient or a parent is used to your style of talking or your style of treating or dealing with the problem, there would be always a certain subsector of patient who would always like to come to that particular doctor only. So that probably is something which may not always change. But what I am trying to actually work on it here in this department here is like every parent who comes here, like our way of saying is we work as a team. So it doesn't matter to whom you show in the team. We will be giving you the same kind of care or same kind of treatment. Having said that, it's very easy to say. It's very easy to put it on paper. But when it comes to practice, it becomes a bit difficult because everybody comes from a different background. Everybody has come from a different education system. Though we talk about the same basic subjects and build up to pediatrician, but the kind of education that has come is always different. So your thought process would always vary the way you treat would definitely vary from person. Even if there is a standardized protocol, the thought process would definitely vary. So that is something that probably may not happen so easily, like probably it's there in some Western countries. But I do see a way with more and more group practices coming up that this can be the way. That is one aspect. The second thing is about quality. Yes, that's something that is uh, paramount important, especially in hospital, inpatient care, and when you're taking care of uh, sick kids. Mm -hmm. So the way probably quality in pediatric is something that is a bit more challenging because getting trained manpower, it's not just about doctors. So, you know, I always say that the biggest strength of your department is not your doctors, it's your nursing staff. Because they are the ones who are always there at the bedside. They are the ones who are taking care of things on day-to-day -day basis. So a strong nursing staff, and that's where the highest attrition is. And that's where in that sector where we are actually having a real dearth of training, unlike the Western countries. So that is something that really needs to improve. So most of us, probably you ask any pediatrician or anybody running, most of us, how it works is we have a fresh nurse or someone who has joined Kachi Mitti Ke Vesa. Then we mold them, we shape them to the unit, we train them, and some of them do really, they're all hard workers. That's one beauty of the nursing staff you see in India. They're, they're real hard workers. They won't flinch even if you say something to them. That, that's a beauty that you won't find anywhere else. And they get molded. And then it boils down to, you know, they are underpaid. So they jump and they get better pace in Middle East or abroad. So that kind of a thing always keeps on, you know, uh, disturbing the harmony of the system. Uh, but still, if you are able to hold on to your basic, this one, yes. 
and uh, the third part of it is SOPs. Yeah, so SOPs always help. In fact, SOPs should be there for probably every kind of treatment or a procedure or anything that you're doing in your hospital or in the unit. Again, very easy to say, very difficult to implement it, but slowly and steadily we are getting there. In fact, if you look at the concept of NABH, which has been there now and it's being made mandatory, one of the ideas behind that is to have a SOP across your healthcare system. So similarly, you can have SOP across your uh, treatment or across your care protocols. Now, for example, let's say I have a patient with, let's say, XYZ or an asthma problem. Let's say I'm just picking an example. So there should be a standard SOP, whether I am there, whether a team member there, or probably whether a nurse is there, they know that, okay, this is the protocol. You follow this. So once that happens, once you implement that, and then that SOP starts percolating. Now what happens is most of the places, the SOPs remain to the purview of most of the times intensive care units. But I would look at those SOPs percolating to the wards and in outpatient care. So once a standardized protocol comes, like child comes with respiratory infection, it's a viral. This is the standard protocol, whether Dr. Nagar treats, whether Dr. someone else treats or whether anybody else treats. This is the protocol. This should not change. Not because you feel that you should add something, not because you want to make the parent comfortable or that you're afraid and you want to add an antibiotic or you're afraid you want to add a nebulization. So that rather than that, this is the standard protocol. This is the margin of deviation which is allowed and everybody follows this. That becomes standardized, which is still a long way I see, but if that becomes, then probably it will not matter as to whether I see or someone sees because the parent knows that he's going to get the same treatment. And I would just wish that that kind of thing comes. So, so one more thing, you know, and I know we do this, for instance, we have a group of genetic counselors and, and you know, when we have a, a difficult case, for instance, uh, then, you know, they bring it up like, just like a tumor board does, right? I mean, where you have, you have a specific case, you would like to get inputs from your peers. Uh, is that something that also happens in the pediatric space where, you know, you find the child with a diagnosis that's hard to understand? Uh, is there like a tumor board like sort of or, or like we do our genetic counseling uh, huddle or whatever you want to call it uh, to figure out uh, is there like there are these uh, uh, standard meetings on a regular basis or that doesn't happen on. So I'm not very sure of other hospitals, but to be very frank and sadly, no, we don't have that. But uh, we do what, uh, you know, have our own internal kind of huddle or something, sit together, discuss out and you know jot it down and you know this is ruled out this is ruled in this is the right thing wrong thing and then we kind of come to a conclusion as what to go about mm -hmm. and then uh, outside the hospital purview I have my own close group of pediatric friends from different places so we always there have been a lot of times when we have something challenging here and I'm not seeing a way out I have a you know phone has made life easy so I have a hurdle with them over phone and we discuss and jot out mm -hmm. and then sometimes what happens when one person hits a roadblock the other person probably might open up a new door for you so that happens a lot of times and that has happened so I just wish I could show you we recently did this kind of hurdle for a doctor's child who had a lot of trouble in getting up appropriate diagnosis and then we all just sat down and I still remember I took a chart and I said okay this is the thing 
first point this is possible likely we have done this so this is kind of so we made a big chart and we then finally zeroed down saying okay this is what is remaining let's go in that direction oh, so those kind of things so um let's move to genetics and 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 you know do you see any cases and i'm sure you do uh, but uh, i know you do uh, but what kind of cases do you see normally where people are coming to you you know where the, where the cause is genetic or or their cause may be genetic um, do you do you see you know a large percentage i know that a lot we, we discussed that a large number of people might come to you even when their child is not i mean is coughing or things like that yeah. Uh, but uh, in in many in some cases, uh, you know, people do come for for a genetic reason. So, what kind of um, you know, approximately, what kind of diseases these are, and and do they come on time, or is that something that could have been prevented if they came to you earlier? There are many questions in that. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I do see. See, uh, I have a bit of a passion for metabolic disorders. Uh, a little bit of you know, I have a lot of interest in immunodeficiency efficiencies and all that so i do keep seeing a lot of these kind of cases and over the period of years yes we've seen a lot of genetic problems a lot of rare diseases and all those things and it's it's been it's been a you know a, a huge uh, plethora of uh, cases involving different systems right from things related to immunity cns issues immunodeficiencies uh, cystic fibrosis neuromuscular disorders so it has been a mixed bag of all these kind of variety of cases that we have seen uh, and sadly in my experience most of the times that i have seen they have come at a stage where you know kind of they are not amenable much to any kind of treatment or therapy and that is kind of a bit sad but having said that uh, from what i know basic uh, of these genetic things see about 70 to 80 percent of these problems are usually seen in children mm -hmm. all these genetic problems because when there is a defect it starts manifesting from childhood period so children actually contribute to a majority of subset of patients who are having genetic problems so that's how we pediatricians keep seeing them a lot now from what i know literature uh, there is no standard definition of these rare genetic disorders, but uh, overall, if you take them as a bag of all the genetic disorders pooled together, currently treatment is available only for less than 5 to 10% of cases. And remaining of them, most of the time, it's more of palliative care. Uh, and even in those 5 to 10% cases where the treatment is kind of available, there are so many situations where the treatment is beyond the reach of, forget a common man, probably even a fairly well-to-do person. So that is something which challenges, but probably as time goes on, hopefully this will change and whatever is available treatment also probably might be, become more and more affordable. Uh, what else uh, is this? Yeah, so I was just trying to say in the same matter, I was just recalling one patient. He was a 15-year-old boy. So when he came to me, and in fact, this was the first interaction, this case with Map My Genome. That's how I remember this child very well. So this child was a 15-year-old boy and uh, he had come to me from Maharashtra. And he had been roaming around almost for the last five years. And he had no diagnosis. He was a child who basically was fairly okay, 
but once he reached seven eight years he stopped walking and then he slowly by time he came to me he was wheelchair bound so the commonest thing that comes in anybody's mind in this situation is always the duchenne muscular dystrophy that's what is a more common thing he was worked up for duchenne by two different people twice it was negative the thing is that's where probably the training and knowledge of genetic or of an idea that things can be done beyond that would be helpful kind of a thing so this child we did went ahead with the investigation on we picked up to be a spinal muscular atrophy and the thing is now time is lost child is already wheelchair bound so there's very little we can do the second thing we do have some innovative therapies available nowadays the drug cost about 2 cr a year Now, 2 cr a year is something which is beyond the reach of almost anybody unless you are ambani or tata so you know so those are kind of challenges that we see i always see but then there are situations where it does help also i'm just trying to talk in more of terms of examples because that's how i relate to so i had a family who used to come from nizambad uh, the first child they came to me at about 3 4 years of age and this was about a decade ago and this child came to me with cardio respiratory failure and the child was with us in icu for quite a few days and finally he had we couldn't figure out a cause the only thing we knew was he had a very bad pulmonary hypertension and we didn't know why we had we did all possible investigations that we could and at that time these genetics were not easily available also so we didn't figure a cause and that child finally actually died then about 4 years or 5 years ago they came with a second child and this child was about a year old with similar problem and the parents had already lost hope the child came again in a bad shape this child i saw somehow able to convince them that you go for a genetic testing they were very much hesitant but finally they agreed we picked up a particular mutation which is known to cause pulmonary vascular fibrosis leading to irreversible hypertension and it's non treatable condition now with that information in background the parents have now gone for the next pregnancy and we are doing the antenatal workup so i am looking at giving them a healthy child let's say if this child is affected rather than going through all the trauma and suffering they could always opt for a next child so we are looking at it's not only about diagnosis at that point of time it's also about how good you can offer them a future child that's something that becomes very very important in these kind of scenarios so even i i remember another case like this we had one mucolipidosis whom we died that was the first clinical exome i did when it was costing about a lakh rupees and that's about almost 10 12 years ago and that child we picked up mucolipidosis on a exome we had no other way of diagnosing it clinically though we read in books this is the feature that is the feature you can't make a definitive diagnosis so we made a diagnosis based on an exome we offered and that child unfortunately lost because there's no kind of thing. and that child second pregnancy antenatal diagnosis the child again had the same problem they aborted the third child no mutation the child is healthy and doing well so this is something that we need to look at in child and that is something we can offer only in a pediatric population that's the beauty and joy of it absolutely i mean and and i think you know like you mentioned most of these cases i think they 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 had one child who was affected and then they came to um i mean it would have been okay if they actually did the exomes for the parents up front 
and and done a before they got married even i think but yeah. but i think that's a little bit too much to ask for <laughs> for especially uh, but we you know we, we can do a, a you know a career screening up front and see if there is something that can be passed on or or otherwise um, but I feel that now that we are, you know, our genetic counselor will be available at uh, CARE. Um, and she's available, I think, mostly on Wednesdays or something. I'm not sure exact uh, time right now. But I think, you know, hopefully it is not just the pediatric uh, doctors, but also maybe the gynecologists and others where people are coming to for a checkup. I think at that point of time, if their family history is is well captured, I think a genetic test can help. And one more point I wanted to bring about was that, you know, there are also lots of these communities, right? So, you know, there are many rare diseases, but there are communities yes. like, you know, the Genetic Alliance and others. Um, and, you know, I've, we work, used to, we, have, we constantly work with them, but it's to say that, you know, the problem is right now, many of them are called, you know, have very few known cases. That's because most of the time they're not getting diagnosed. So if we actually could diagnose more, the community becomes larger and and when the community becomes larger i think the possibility of a drug or a therapy also becomes bigger yes. but i think that's another reason why we need to look at finding these cases because you know it is not just for that particular family i think it's also for future families to be able to understand those yes, absolutely um, so I know I can I can continue uh, talking about uh, this you know for for a long time, but you know when when we think about you know just overall you know from uh, from your point of view, what do you think prevention means, right? Because different people think prevention differently. So what what are your thoughts on prevention? Uh, so prevention, as in general, or prevention with uh... anything prevention of you know, disease or prevention of, and uh, you know, in in this specific context for for pediatric for parents, right? I mean, how do you prevent disease for for children? Um, your thoughts on it? It can be anything, whatever you feel like. <laughs> it's it's a very tricky question and a bit difficult to answer. Uh, let me try. So well, so prevention for me, what I would look at is, you know, if you are able to have a healthy in the sense you're not suffering from any kind of major disease and you are able to go through your routine without any issues if you are able to achieve that whether it's a child or whether it's an adult probably you have achieved a majority of the subset of what you called as prevention so it would start right from the habits that you cultivate be it the physical activity be it your eating habits or maybe when I talk to a parent, in fact a lot of parents do at times are scared when I give them a lecture on breastfeeding. I'm a staunch believer of that. So that's a preventive therapy. You're preventing so many problems. So that is one thing. Uh, prevention also probably will be in terms of how you educate your child or the kind of habits you cultivate into your child whether it's in terms of uh, you know just this stupid device which has ruined the you know caused problems of so many things so you know that starts now i am seeing kids right on the prescription no no phones <laughs> so i'm seeing kids uh, 10 months 11 months they keep swiping that so 
you don't give them that that's prevention so <laughs> what else i would add into this i think that's a fantastic uh, great thing to talk about because i think a lot of us don't realize it that uh, you know it's an easy way for parents to sort of give a device because it's free up their time but i think then they get addicted to the yes to the screen yeah. so it's I related to so many problems and really scientifically speaking uh the science behind it is uh, when you are you addicted to a phone the reason the addiction happens is you're doing what you like and the result you get is kind of a positive biofeedback mm-hmm. that positive feedback is so staunch that you feel like you keep on doing that and it's an endless plethora of options there but then if you really look into that has led to us so many problems kids with poor cognition autism is on the rise we really don't know whether it's be- i have never seen so many autism cases as i'm seeing now in my pediatric days autism oh autism obesity to western country mein hota hai hamare paas hai nahi we never used to even bother reading it and now it's rampant so again these are preventable things what you know our lifestyles are somehow pushing our kids to that edge of those kind of disorders so when it, when it comes to autism i mean i guess we don't know all the reasons but part of it is also could be genetic, genetic. yes and do you see that uh, do you see a more increased number of cases where you are you know finding you know autism as something and and identifying the root cause of uh, where that comes from or or that is i would love to do that but uh, to be very honest i don't deal with them the reason being is it's a completely different domain and requires a lot of uh, insight and input from a person who is specially doing that so that's something which i don't really deal with it but yes if you ask me really i would look at screening all the kids because definitely there is a component of genetic there sitting it's something like a two hit you have some component the environment triggers the thing and the entire thing blows up and manifest uh, do you, do you uh, i'm sure you do but uh, what are the common myths that that normally you have to uh, fight against if i find my say so so the biggest myth uh mother is eating something and does it affect the baby because the baby is feeding so mother is like the grandmother or the father or someone will say in is mother ne ice cream khaya hai isliye bacche ko sardi ho gayi ya mother had something outside yesterday food that's why baby is having loose motions so that's a big myth and honestly i always tell them this very very innovative my idea of answer i give them i ask everybody what milk you drink and they all say cow's milk or buffalo milk or whatever so i say did you go and check what did the cow eat because you're drinking the cow's milk and did you correlate anything happening to you because of what the cow is eating <laughs> you know so that is one common myth and then this is another common myth that is there quite commonly in india more often and it's about hot foods and cold foods so this food will cause ye thandak karega to ye nahi dena hai ye garmi karega to ye nahi dena hai now there is no such thing there is no such thing it's not like a generic kisi ko garam karega aur aisa nahi hota hai but uh yeah i don't know really if you trigger some point i can remember more of myths 
but uh, I mean, I think but different foods do trigger for different people, right? I mean, in terms of you know what they eat and others, mostly based yeah. on their metabolism. Yeah, that's that's a different put onto the different class of yeah, maybe intolerant to certain foods. That's that's possible. Yeah. So I think one of the things we've found quite often is when we do like a genome patri or others is that we we look at a lot of these food allergies, right? Like so, um, peanut, uh, lactose. And, you know, all of that. Now, one of the things I found is that in Western countries, we find a lot more peanut allergies as compared to India. Yes. Uh, I haven't seen a genetic analysis of that yet in terms of what percentage. But do you think uh, that is because of our, maybe is it, the, is it our microbiome and the environment we are in? Or is it just <laughs> that, you know, maybe we are, but we don't care and we continue eating it. And then later on that develops because we do see that for a lot of people, uh, especially lactose, we are seeing that happen, um, you know, when they are in the 50s, then you start developing uh, some of yeah. these uh, symptoms. Uh, but I don't know if there's an answer for that uh, in terms I, of... I don't know. I'm lactose intolerant. Yeah. <laughs> I think what someone told me was that if Indians stop drinking milk, a lot of our problems will, will go away. Actually, that's true, you know. Actually, that's really, really true fact. Uh, probably a lot of people may not agree with me. This is kind of more of my personal thought. But it's, it's based on facts of what I am looking at. So uh, this is how I think that, you know, that milk production by a cow or a buffalo or whatever animal, the animal is not producing that milk for us to consume. We are consuming it. That's a different story. It's producing it for its calf. Yes. But we consume. And there is some amount of fact, though I may say it's not conclusively proven, about milk being the, uh, you know, genom data of so many problems, right? From allergies to a lot of gut disorders and all those things. It is a significant contributor to it, especially the animal milk. Yeah. So, I stopped drinking. I mean, I I can drink it. I don't have a problem with it, but I don't drink normally. Uh, I don't have milk in my coffee or tea. I don't have sugar. I have cut out a lot of lot of things for many years. That, that's that's very healthy living. Yeah, but many people tell me, sugar to hai why, why are you doing this?" And I said, "I don't want. I want to continue being in that state. I don't want to." That's nice. Uh, get to that point where I have to, I mean, where I have to, you know, yeah. told that don't do it, right? Uh, but but I think that's the, so is there anything else you would like to say? Then I have this rapid fire round that that I can, that I want to ask you. But before that, if, if there's something that, uh, and I know I could have, I can continue this conversation for two hours, but I, I would <laughs> uh, not, not like to, you know, take up so much of your time. To no, no, it was fun talking to you. If there's anything you want to say, otherwise I'll move to the rapid rapid fire. Sure. Okay. Um, all right. So, are you a morning person or a night person? Night person. Night person. I can't wake up in the morning. Yeah, same as you. Uh, so, if you were not a doctor, what would you have been? So, I'm good with Max and honestly, Max and finance. So, I would have definitely gone into something with finance, whether it's into. Gujarati genes, yes. Huh? You said Gujarati. Yeah, but I don't have the business genes of Gujarati. So I would have gone more on the finance lines. Yes, but that would have been something which, in fact, uh, that was my backup plan if I don't get into MBBS. Okay. Uh, and what is the most common complaint about you by your friends? 
uh well most of my friends are from the same community doctors so they don't have complaints because they are in the same boat yeah. but my non medical friends and cousins everybody the complaint is i'm never available for them to give chai oh. and which is your favorite vacation spot uh in terms of location it would always be a beach and in terms of place it is the andaman islands wow nice so actually in one of our gupchap sessions with dr tangraj um, and maybe it will be of interest to you then uh, because he's done a lot of research on andaman population <laughs> um so it is very fascinating more on the heritage and where we came from and uh, he found that andamanese population to be a very interesting set of people uh because they also shared some lot of genes with the african people so in terms of migration there was one small sect of people that moved here and they have the a very close genetic link over there so more of one of the earlier set of human beings that that came over there so just thought maybe since it is an interesting you know mm. location for you maybe that might be something that you might want to you know listen to and talk nice. to them as well all right um so i think i had a absolutely fantastic uh, time talking to you uh, it's a pleasure to uh, to have been able to spend this time talking to you and having this gupshap um is there anything that you would like to tell our our viewers patients parents or whoever else is watching this yeah so uh, the best thing would be so the uh, best uh, message that i would uh, give is probably that's my philosophy of uh, life is uh, one learn to let go because life is too short to keep too many sad moments or too many petty things to ponder over there is always a better tomorrow coming and i would always look at living life or living your day as if you know there's a very nice saying i don't recall who had said but that's what i would say ki live as if there's no tomorrow and learn as if there's an endless tomorrow wow that's amazing yeah. that's uh, that i think those are absolutely so, uh, if if you actually look at my whatsapp status it's not changed for last uh, almost 8 10 years it says that uh, live life the fullest diapita should say no regrets no regrets yes absolutely but thank you i think that those are great good great things to to close this uh, genomics workshop with and thank you once again for taking the time uh, we hope to meet you in i hope to meet you in person soon definitely thank you thank you thank you